Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on January 31, 2018, focusing on the new U.S.-based erosion and anti-abuse tax, or BEAT. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, PwC's Tax Services Leader, Quinn Nguyen, a PwC Tax Principal focusing on international tax issues, Tom Quinn, a PwC tax partner also f- focusing on international tax issues, and Paige Hill, a PwC tax principal and leader of our PwC transfer pricing practice in the United States. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists on the statutory framework of the BEAT and how the rules generally work. Paige, I'm going to start with you and just see if you can do a little bit of level setting for people and just baseline how the beat rules work, and then we'll, we'll work our way through. Right. Thank you. So the beat rules are fundamentally aimed at uh, applying an additional level of tax on payments from out of the U.S. to a foreign affiliate, subject to certain exceptions and certain materiality, materiality thresholds. Um, we have a couple examples here that really kind of help you sort of look for the types of uh, transactions from an issue spotting perspective to think about where you may need to evaluate BEAT within your organization. Um, so the first example is an inbound example. Um, very straightforward, we have a foreign company with a subsidiary that pays some sort of a fee up to the foreign company. Um, to the extent that that fee is uh, a cost of goods sold, that would um, not be subject to BEAT. To the extent that that fee uh, subject is, would be um, eligible for the services cost method exception under the 482 services rules, that would also not be subject to BEAT. Um, and that's a very gray area. We'll get into that more in detail later. Um, but things to look for are royalties, uh, services payments, interest payments, those types of things which are viewed as being eroding the, the income base in the US. Um, but even for um, outbound examples, uh, there are a lot of things that you would want to look for as well. So, for example, if you have a, a U.S. parent company with a CFC that's making payments up to the parent, I'm sorry, making payments out um, from the parent to the CFC, you could be subject to beat. For example, um, procurement companies or foreign uh, service centers. Those are the types of things that could apply. Um, interestingly, though, to the extent that you have a payment to a disregard entry or branch, you don't need to be as concerned about the beat payment is not applicable. And two quick thoughts, Paige. You've set this up as an example of what it looks like in an inbound scenario versus an outbound scenario. I'd urge the viewers as we go through today to think about this as well in terms of different industries, how it might impact a manufacturing company compared to a service company. No, that's absolutely right. So I think if we go to the next slide, um, we'll talk a little bit about sort of the, the concept uh, of how the beat calculation will flow through. And again, it's, it's actually quite detailed, and we'll get through some of those um, later in the webcast. But, but you fundamentally start with your taxable income. You add back the base eroding payments. You add back the base erosion percentage of your annual deduction to get to what is called modified taxable income. Okay, That's your starting point. From there, you take 10% of that. Uh, which is the, the, the base that they're looking at taxing, and you uh, take back um, regular tax liability, net of certain credits, and we'll go into those in details of which credits apply. And that gives your base emergent minimum payment amount. So it, it really acts a lot like a minimum tax. That was, that, I mean, that was going to be my point. So trying to set the stage, this is sort of just another alternative tax base. It's a minimum tax base. To your point, applying a 10% rate, but actually to that 10% rate, 
increasing the base that we're comparing the tax to by all these uh, base eroding payments that we're adding back. So, I mean, that, 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 that's the fundamentals of what we're getting through, and we'll get into all the details as it relates to how all these definitions work. But. I think we're going to get back to that point on minimum tax a couple times during the presentation, yeah. particularly on who might be subject to that minimum tax, because certain industries are more susceptible than others. It's a great point. Okay, great. Um, Quinn, I want to come to you with a question that's sort of top of mind when I'm out dialoguing with clients these days, and that is, um, we've seen a couple of notices right now of guidance coming from Treasury, but so much of the focus right now has been on the toll charge, 965, the mandatory deemed repatriation. I sense there hasn't been a lot of guidance yet that's come out of Treasury as it relates to applying the BEAT provisions. Um, is that the case, and what do you see sort of playing that forward just from your vantage point? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think um, as we're seeing in terms of the guidance that's coming out of Treasury right now, you know, this uh, tax act just passed in December, and Treasury's only had, you know, a short amount of time, as we all have, to digest not only the rules, but to figure out what their response will be in terms of guidance to these rules. And so I think as we've seen with the first two notices, or, or three notices now at this point that have come out of Treasury, they're really focusing on guidance that they must feel is pressing and, and sort of immediate. So the first notice dealing with um, publicly traded partnerships and turning off withholding, that had an impact on financial markets. Uh, the toll charge notices that we see coming out have an immediate impact also on companies that are trying to assess what their liability is under the transition tax. Um, and at the same time, they, at least with respect to the second toll notice, have tried to address miscellaneous sort of issues that um, at this point they're probably comfortable with providing an answer to. And so I, I think in terms of the future guidance that we're going to see by Treasury, I suspect they'll continue to triage and focus on areas where, you know, provisions under the new code that affect uh, financial statements, that affect the markets, and that affect sort of just can people implement the rules, just getting it up off the ground without guidance. And so, you know, people have been out there uh, talking that there will probably be more toll charge guidance. There will probably be some guidance surrounding the interest uh, limitations under 163J. There will be items affecting small businesses and the accounting methods as well. Um, BEAT, I think, was mentioned at a D.C. Uh, tax bar conference recently where they were highlighting that that is at least an area where the government is currently engaged in terms of thinking about the provision. And, you know, I think one of the things that would be helpful are obviously if clients and taxpayers are seeing issues as they're going through their impact analysis and potentially thinking about what they're going to do to implement these provisions. Um, I think Treasury and IRS are both open to people coming in to talking about what those issues are, highlighting them so that they could sort of figure out where in the guidance train such issues should be embedded. Um, but, you know, in terms of, of beat guidance, I think hopefully we'll see something before the spring. Yeah, and to your point, Treasury's been really open about actually seeking taxpayer input to understand where their focus should be, the types of areas they should be looking at. So it's a great point. Thanks for digging in on that one. Um, Quinn, I'm going to come over to you. I think we're now going to get into sort of the statutory framework and the scope of what's going on from a BEAT standpoint. So if you wouldn't mind maybe starting to walk us through that. Sure. Um, I think, you know, again, if you keep in, uh, keep in mind the early flowchart of sort of the analysis. So, you know, a lot of people have been talking about the BEAT. What is it exactly? As Ken and as Paige have indicated, the BEAT is a new potential minimum tax that's imposed on a corporate taxpayer, whether foreign or U.S. companies. Um, and it's calculated on a new base, the modified taxable income base. So the easiest way to think about it is to, to think about the fact that you're going to compute 
your modified taxable income base, multiply that by whatever the applicable rate is, and I'll explain why I say whatever the applicable tax rate is, um, and you have an amount of potential tax exposure, you then take into account what your regular tax liability is, reduce that by certain allowable credits, and if the regular tax liability is less than your modified tax liability, then the taxpayer pays the difference. And so it's a top-up tax or a min-tax, if you will, uh, in that respect. But if your regular tax liability is higher than the modified taxable income um, tax amount, then there is no additional tax. And so, again, you'd have to model and think about two different things as you're thinking about the beat. One is, are you an applicable taxpayer? Because the provision applies only to an applicable taxpayer. And two, if it does apply and you have to go through the computations, do you actually have a, a beat exposure? Um, and again, we'll walk through what it means to have a beat exposure and how you do the computations. Um, on this slide also, one of the things to note and keep in mind is that the effective date for, for the provision is that it applies to base erosion payments which is defined in the statute that are paid or accrued uh, for tax years beginning after December 31, 2017. And uh, that will be very relevant as we get into the slides as to why you should care about the effective date of this provision. So digging in a little more uh, on the, the computation of the, of the beat tax, Again, as we've said um, up here, you'll notice the different rates that apply. So in 2018 tax years, the rate is 5%. Generally, it's 6% if you're a financial institution, a bank, or a dealer, or a member of a group that includes a bank or a dealer. But for most taxpayers, it will be 5% in 2018. In 2019, that will increase to 10%. And then in 2025, or for tax years starting after 2025, there's the potential that the tax will go up to 12.5%. Um, and every the 10 and the 12.5%, there is an additional 1% if you're dealing again with a bank or a securities dealer um, or a member of a group that includes one of those two. But those are the rates that apply when you're thinking about the beat and the modified taxable income. Um, we'll talk about what MTI means on the next slide. But for purposes of computing your regular tax liability, again, we start with 10% of modified taxable income minus what your regular tax liability is, net of certain credits. And so what does this net of certain credits mean? So you have your regular tax liability, and generally most taxpayers hopefully can take certain credits. The credits will reduce your regular tax liability. And again, in the context of the BEAT, you want your regular tax liability potentially to be higher than the BEAT tax liability, because if it's higher, you don't have an additional BEAT exposure. Um, what the allowance of credits does here is it essentially allows taxpayers to retain the benefit of the research credit. And additionally, it allows taxpayers to retain the benefit of certain applicable Section 38 credits. And what an applicable Section 38 credit means is a defined term within the statute. It generally will include um, tax credits available for low-income housing, renewable energy, and certain investment credits allowed under Section 46, uh, up to 80% of that or 80% of the beat amount um, without regard to such credits. And so you'd have to, again, go through the computations very methodically to figure out what is the regular tax liability that you're comparing against the modified taxable income. And so if we flip to the next slide, um, you'll see what modified taxable income means. So again, as Paige indicated early on, modified taxable income, your starting point is taxable income. 
determined without regard to certain tax benefits. So what are the tax benefits we're talking about? They are called base erosion tax benefits, a defined term within the statute uh, uh, with respect to any base erosion payment or including any base erosion percentage of any uh, NOL deduction that is allowed for, for that taxable year. So you start with taxable income and essentially you're adding back all those tax benefits. And so on some level, it's a clawback of the deductions that you potentially as a taxpayer were allowed to take uh, when you're computing modified taxable income. One of the interesting things to point out on this particular slide is that um, when we're talking about the base erosion tax benefit with respect to a base erosion payment, um, it's interesting to note that the statute kind of broke this up into two different points. Um, so earlier on when I talked about the effective date, the effective date for the provision is a base erosion um, payment that's made after taxable years beginning on December 31, 2017. So you could have certain cases where you've had an uh, acquisition of property pre-effective uh, date where you're taking the tax benefit, the deduction essentially post-enactment years. And so if you look at the provision, you might have a tax benefit when you're taking that depreciation deduction in 2018 or 2019, but it's not necessarily with respect to a base erosion payment, which is that the purchase price for that asset occurred before December 31, 2017. And so it's kind of important when you're looking at the statute uh, and thinking through the impact to not only think about the types of deductions that you're taking, um, again, you don't have to be making a payment, you're, you're taking a deduction in that current year, you could still be subject to the beat. And I think as companies work through this, they're finding out a lot of surprising effects with, with the NOLs, if you use too many foreign tax credits, um, how that might expose you potentially to beat. Yeah, back to the point on the, the type of taxpayer that's exposed to these rules, Characteristics like net operating losses, characteristics like credits, or get, could potentially throw you into this yeah. at a very low level of related party payment. Right. That's right. Absent that component, it's it's interesting from a policy standpoint. Sometimes I hear people saying that um, we're making intercompany base eroding payments non-deductible. That, that's not true to the extent you're not over that threshold. So absent those developments, you're talking about eroding your tax base by more than fifty percent of the tax that's base. Right with those types of payments before this kicks in. So it, it is a certain uh, type of taxpayer that this applies to, absent those factors, as you pointed out, NOLs and other things that can cause that to be a much lower threshold. It's, so that, that's a good point, Ken. I think it also, if you're in a low margin business, even if you're someone who has a considerable amount of yeah. net income, it still might be a very low margin. That's right. And that might throw you into this as well. Yeah, that's a great point. So in the next slide, we just wanted to identify uh, what are base eroding payments. And for the most part, a base eroding payment includes any amount that's paid or accrued by the taxpayer to a foreign person who is related to the taxpayer and with respect to which a deduction is allowed. Uh, it also includes any amount that is paid or accrued to a foreign related party uh, in connection with the acquisition of property which is depreciable or amortizable. It also includes relevant for insurance companies, you know, any premiums are the consideration paid again to a related foreign person um, and any amount that is paid or accrued to a surrogate foreign corporation or a member of a group that includes a surrogate foreign corporation, which reduces the gross receipts of the taxpayer. Um, and on the last point, the surrogate foreign corporation has uh, a meaning that essentially it's if you're an expatriated entity and that expatriation occurs after November 7th, uh, 
November 9th, 2017. And so for right now, hopefully it won't apply to a whole lot of taxpayers. What base erosion payments exclude under this statute? Um, as Paige indicated earlier, you know, if you have amounts that are paid for services and those services are eligible for the service cost method under uh, Section 482, and the amount of the services essentially constitutes total services uh, for cost with no markup component, those types of payments would be excluded um, from being a base eroding payment. Additionally, and very late in the day when this uh, provision was ultimately adopted, there was also added an exclusion for certain qualified derivative payments um, that are made that they would not be treated as a bad base eroding payment. But again, you have to go to the statute where it actually defines uh, uniquely a derivative for the first time. Um, but it's essentially a payment that's made in the ordinary course of a taxpayer's business that you have to take uh, mark to mark and treat any gain or loss as ordinary. And so if that is the type of taxpayer that this exception could apply to, then those types of payments would not be bad based eroding payments. Um, and again, the caveat is that provided that the underlying security or asset to which the derivative is um, uh, referencing would not have also been a base eroding payment. And so again, you'd really have to look at the definition of what it means in order to determine whether you're eligible to exclude such payments from being bad base eroding payments. And as Paige will get into later, um, even on the first one, it sounds very simple to decide that you might qualify, um, but there are gray areas in, in interpreting sort of the exception to the rule. And again, um, I had mentioned you need to look at the definition in the statute. Um, you know, it talks about base erosion tax benefits with respect to a base erosion payment. We now know what base erosion payments are. Um, and it essentially, the, the base erosion tax benefit is, again, the benefits that you are potentially adding back um, into your modified taxable income computation. One thing I think that we wanted to note very importantly and interestingly is that cost of goods sold generally is not going to be treated as a bad base erosion payment um, because it's a reduction in gross receipts of the taxpayer. It's not a deduction for the most part. And so it's limited in terms of its scope that you could have a bad base erosion payment uh, for cost of goods sold, but only in the sense of if the taxpayer is making that payment to a surrogate foreign corporation or a member of a group that includes a surrogate foreign corporation, wherein uh, that rule obviously includes any reduction in tax, um, in the gross receipts of the taxpayer. And so that's the only time in which you worry about payments for cost of goods sold. So um, at the beginning, I said there are two main things that taxpayers, as they're going through the beach, to think about. The first being sort of the gating question. Are you a taxpayer that is subject to the beat? And in order to determine whether you are, you need to decide whether it's a taxpayer that meets the definition of an applicable taxpayer. And so an applicable taxpayer is generally a corporation other than a RIC, a REIT, or an S-Corp. Uh, the corporation has to have an average annual gross receipts of at least $500 million for the three-year period ending with the preceding tax year. So the three last years that you're looking at, you have to have an average uh, gross receipts of at least $500 million, and for which the taxpayer has a base erosion percentage of at least 3% or higher and in the case of banks and registered securities dealers, again, the special rule, it's only 2% uh, for the tax year. And um, if you flip to the next slide, I wanted to highlight um, 
especially this aggregation rule. So when you're looking at whether or not you have a taxpayer that is an applicable taxpayer, the definition was on the preceding slide. The definition is coupled with an aggregation rule, which is kind of interesting. So the way in which you're testing um, whether you meet this threshold to be an applicable taxpayer is potentially on an aggregation rule. You treat all members of your group as a single taxpayer. And in this case, it's if you're more than 50% controlled under uh, 1563. Uh, it's modified again so that instead of an 80% threshold, it's 50%, a more than 50% test. So you just have to have control of that percentage, and it has modified 1563 by including foreign corporations into that. So you can have a foreign corporation now that is also a member of the controlled group, um, and you treat that as a single taxpayer. And in the case of a foreign corporation, there's also a special rule that says if you have a foreign corporation that is included in the aggregation rule as a part of the controlled group, the foreign corporation takes into account its gross receipts only to the extent that the gross receipts are taken into account in determining the effectively connected income of the foreign corporation. Um, and again, so that's the aggregation rule. It applies in two different scenarios. It applies when you're looking at whether the taxpayer or the group of taxpayers meets the $500 million threshold. And it also applies um, on an aggregate basis to determine whether the group meets a 3% base erosion percentage. Um, and there are some interesting um, uh, uh, unclear areas in terms of the application of the aggregation rule. Uh, in terms of the base erosion percentage here, so there are two things that the applicable taxpayer needs to meet, not only be a seed corporation, but also have a $500 million gross receipts test and the 3% base erosion test. And the base erosion percentage uh, is defined on this slide, but essentially what it's trying to do is, is that for your numerator, you're adding back all of the total tax benefits that the taxpayer was allowed or the taxpayer's controlled group was allowed, and you're dividing that by um, the, the total amount of allowable deductions that the group was uh, permitted to take, including any reductions that were treated as a tax benefit. You would also add that back into the denominator. And what you don't take into account in the denominator are certain special deductions, so the deduction for NOL, the deduction for foreign uh, dividends received, and the deduction for guilty and FIDI, or FODI, as some prefer to call it. Um, you don't take those into account in the denominator. What you also don't take into account in your denominator are amounts that would be eligible for the service cost method and amounts that are not treated as base eroding payments um, in, the in the case of a qualified derivative payment. And one of the things that I think I wanted to note here, interestingly, is that for taxpayers, that are trying to claim um, the exclusion from this for, for services that meet the service cost method is to pay attention to this base erosion percentage because we've had uh, situations where the taxpayer thought that by, by excluding the services, they were able to reduce not just their exposure to the beat tax, but also uh, to reduce their base erosion percentage so that the tax would not apply at all. And they were forgetting that when you exclude the cost uh, for services from the numerator, the tax benefit part, you also have to exclude it from the denominator. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to fall out of beat. You need to do the computations to figure out whether you're still in the soup, uh, potentially. All right. You just did an exceptional job getting through a lot of material there <laughs> in a pretty concise fashion. So great job. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, 
please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.